0: I'd ask that you uh, turn with me uh, this morning to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 4. And this is uh, the conclusion of Paul's letter. We're going to be starting at uh, verse 10. And to set the stage for us, uh, Paul is writing to a church that he had helped start likely about 10 years before he writes this letter the apostle Paul's writing from prison where he's been uh, put because he was relentless in telling people about Jesus. He just wouldn't shut up. And so finally he's, he's thrown in jail and the Philippians to whom Paul is writing, they're suffering for their faith in Jesus as well. And Paul is writing to the Philippians with a particular aim to show them how they can find joy in Jesus. So if you read through Paul's letter, which you could easily do this afternoon. Paul speaks of finding joy in ministry partnerships and the gospel's advance in chapter one. He speaks of joy in the the unity uh, which produces, um, in the humility which produces unity, which Paul says in chapter two. In chapter three, Paul speaks of the joy in the gospel, uh, which gives us confidence before God. And then in chapter 4, at the beginning of the chapter, he speaks of joy as the people uh, are growing in Christ's likeness. In our passage this morning, Paul's going to give one uh, final source of joy in the Christian life. He's going to speak of the joy which comes from gospel-advancing generosity. Now, it's true that Paul, in this case, was on the receiving end of the generosity. He had received a gift. The Philippians had sent a man named Epaphroditus, uh, who was their messenger. They'd sent him to Paul to assist Paul in his ministry, but also to supply Paul with a financial gift that was meant to support Paul in the work that he was doing. And yet this passage speaks not only to how we're to respond to the gifts that God gives us, but also how we can find joy in giving gifts to others to support the work of gospel ministry. So we might say that this is a passage that addresses not only our hearts, but also our wallets and the money that God has entrusted us with. And this isn't our normal uh, impulse exactly when it comes to our money, but Paul uh, helps us to see that we'll find joy not in being driven by need or being driven by greed, but instead we can find joy in the partnerships that are giving shows, and the profit and pleasure that our giving brings. So, if you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at those three reasons uh, or three ways that gospel advancing uh, gi- uh, giving produces joy. We're going to be looking at uh, what that means for our partnerships, our profit, and for God's pleasure. So, I'm going to start reading Philippians 4, starting at verse 10. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I'm seeking the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we uh, confess that in it is the path of life. In it, we come to know who you are as our creator, but also as our redeemer. And Lord, in it, we find how you intend to lead us to places of joy. And Lord, there's many things that would Uh, fight against us experiencing joy in the Christian life, but as we turn to these words, we ask that you would equip us, that you would arm us, that you would give us ammunition as we pursue joy in Jesus today and this week. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if you've ever received a gift that made you uh, really excited. Like not just somewhat excited, but really, really uh, excited. Uh, I have. Um, I thought that this gift was going to be too expensive. It was 30 whole dollars. It seemed way more than I deserved. I knew that my cousin had it, but that was different. He lived in America, and you guys had these sorts of special things here. In Canada, we couldn't uh, even dream of having such luxuries. It was the Star Wars Essential Guide to Characters, first edition. Man, my heart was set on that thing. And when I unwrapped it that Christmas, it was the best Christmas ever. I wonder if you've ever received a gift that filled you with pure joy. Well, that was Paul's response at receiving a financial gift from the Philippians. It was pure joy, as he himself described. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Well, in fact, this is the only place in the New Testament that Paul speaks so enthusiastically of rejoicing greatly. We might raise a Spockian eyebrow when we hear Paul's passionate response to this financial gift. After all, Paul has said in chapter 1 that he rejoiced when Christ was proclaimed. He rejoiced at the Philippians' joy and progress in the faith. But now he rejoices greatly upon receiving a financial gift in the mail. We want to say, really, Paul? One might be tempted to think that Paul's not so different from the uh, public speakers in his day who were quite pleased to pocket a paycheck for their fancy speaking engagements. Could it be that Paul's true colors, a green shade of avarice, were beginning to come through here at the end of his letter? I don't think so. If you know anything about Paul's life, his biography speaks against such a conclusion. Remember, he's in prison for the gospel, but besides that, he's endured other great sufferings for the sake of Jesus. When Paul could have leaned on the generosity of others— he instead was ready as a tradesman, as a tent worker, to work with his hands to relieve people of the financial obligation to support his ministry, though that was his his right to expect that they would. In fact, knowing that some would be tempted to uh, think that Paul was maybe motivated by uh, uh, unsavory motivations, uh, we can notice how Paul takes great care in his conclusion to qualify why he's so excited upon receiving their gift now understanding that that his joyful response could be misinterpreted paul carefully qualifies why he's so exuberant so you can see in the passage that paul has three negative statements it's as if he's saying i rejoiced greatly when i received your gift but it wasn't because of this or i don't want you to think it was be, uh, it was for this reason. Well, what were those qualifications? Well, the first qualification that Paul makes is that he does not want the Philippians to think that he rejoiced because he had felt neglected by them. When he says that he rejoiced that at last you had revived your concern for me, it wasn't some shot at the Philippians because Paul goes on to say, I knew that you were concerned for me, but you had no uh, opportunity to show that concern. Now, Paul doesn't elaborate or explain why they didn't have that opportunity. Various reasons have been suggested by uh, commentators. But his first concern is to say that he was joyful at receiving their gift, not because he felt neglected by them or because he felt that they were depriving them of something that he was owed. Secondly, Paul qualifies his exceeding joy by saying that it was not because he was in need. In other words, Paul's saying that his joy did not stem from some perceived lack. And we should ask ourselves, why does Paul give us these verses on contentment here? Contentment is not the main focus or emphasis in these verses, but rather Paul speaks about contentment to establish why their gift was so joy-producing. But think about where Paul is. Paul's in prison. His future, in one sense, is uncertain. His mobility is limited. And yet, Paul says that he has learned to be content. The word that Paul uses here uh, for contentment is used only here in the New Testament. But if you read some of the wider literature of the Greek world in Paul's day, uh, the term was often understood to refer to being self sufficient. So some of the philosophers in Paul's day would use the term to speak of being independent. They were not dependent upon anyone or anything in the world around them. They were freed from reliance upon uh, anything at all. But when Paul adopts this word, however, he doesn't adopt this word unthinkingly from his uh, surrounding cultural context. Instead, he uses the word and he gives it a specifically Christian understanding. Because unlike his contemporaries, Paul's not speaking of having uh, enough ability or strength in himself to weather the ups and downs of life. This would go against the whole tenor or mood of Paul's letter to this point. This sort of stoic self-sufficiency is also ruled out in our text by looking at verse 13. When Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now of course, You've ever been in a Christian bookstore? You know that this vo- uh, this verse looks great on a coffee mug or on a calendar or painted on your athletes or your favorite athletes' football cleats. But that's not going to help when you try out for the school wrestling team and you weigh 150 pounds. I was in, in 11th grade and I just uh, added five inches and I didn't know how to use my limbs. I couldn't a- uh, appeal to the, the basketball coach and say, Coach, you shouldn't cut me. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't work that way. Try applying for a mortgage and just pushing this over the desk of the banker. It's not going to happen, right? The declaration that I can do all things in verse 13 is qualified by the context of verses 11 and 12. For this reason, I think the New International Translation is helpful because it translates the verse this way. It says, I can do all this, meaning... I can endure plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all this through him that is through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul says he can do all things whether he is brought low brought low or lifted high through Jesus. So Christian contentment doesn't come as we recognize our own uh, inner self-sufficiency, but it comes as we draw upon the strength that's from outside of us as we recognize the all-sufficiency of God as we're united to Jesus in living faith. And it's this ongoing vibrant relationship with Jesus which satisfies Paul and it enables him to weather and endure every circumstance that he's brought into even prison. Now Paul would agree that contentment uh, comes as we pry our hearts off of their uh, off of their attachment to other created things. We need to wean our hearts off the world so to speak. But he says that this can only be done as we come to know the all-sufficiency of God. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that this is not an attitude or a way of thinking or a way of living that is immediately downloaded the second that you make a profession of faith. But it's a lesson that's learned gradually in the Christian life, and it's one that we need to commit ourselves to, because there's all sorts of things that would conspire against our contentment. But the point here, and the reason why Paul brings this up here, is that he wants to make the point, his joy does not come from sensing that, that there were things that, that he needed but didn't have. All the joy that, that came from the gift that he received uh, uh, didn't come from that. He wasn't struggling with contentment. He was satisfied in his circumstances. Whatever the reason for joy was, it had to come from somewhere else. And the third negation or qualification that we see in Paul's joyful thanks is found in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. In other words, though he rejoiced at receiving their gift, Paul's joy did not spring from the gift of financial support itself. Paul distinguishes between receiving the gift, which he's grateful for, and what his heart is really after. It wasn't the money that produced this joy in Paul. He wasn't motivated by greed or self-gain. Now, as we consider Paul's care to distinguish what doesn't motivate his joy in receiving this gift, I think it's instructive for us as we consider how do we receive the resources that God gives us. Because Paul shows us with his negations that there's a way of receiving gifts that God gives that's in error. We can think about the resources that God supplies us through our jobs, through the generosity of others, or through other uh, providential means. We can think about these things incorrectly. Sometimes that means we receive God's provision with a sense of entitlement. I'm glad you finally did your part for me. Or we can see God's provision as a necessary means of addressing something we think that we absolutely need, uh, but we don't have. We see God's provision as a means of satisfying our desires for certain things that we wished we could have. Or still further, we might uh, desire s- uh, certain things just because we want to have more. A bigger bank, bank account, a bigger house. Right? We can seek the gift as an end in itself. Entitlement, discontent, greed. Now, there's applications for us as we think uh, both about our life together in a church context, but also as our, in our life as individual Christians. Because as a church, we can fall into this trap as we consider our, our finances. It's possible uh, for churches uh, to look at other churches and think, man, if only we had their means. Or to wish, if only our general fund uh, balance was a little bit larger to protect us from uh, surprises. Or if only we had a bigger uh, church building. Right? We might also think wrongly that congregational giving is just a way to keep the lights on uh, and, and make sure that the, the coffee is there on Sundays. Challenges us on a personal level too. God provides for us through our jobs, through the generosity of others, through other means. But when our paycheck lands in the bank or the tax return comes in, And you think, oh man, that feels good. What's motivating those positive feelings? Is uh, is there a need or a desire that is finally being filled? Is there an expectation of something that you eagerly desired and now can have? The long awaited renovation, uh, the new car, the security that income provides. Now it's not wrong to uh, save for retirement or to uh, uh, buy a new car. But Paul here uh, challenges us to examine our motivations. Are we finding our joy? Are we finding our satisfaction in the provision of stuff, in the stuff itself, or something else? Well, if Paul doesn't rejoice in the gift itself, why does he rejoice? Why might we rejoice? Where could we find joy? What about the Philippians' generosity caused the joy to spill over for Paul when Epaphroditus came? Well, we can look at three reasons why Paul rejoiced greatly at their gift. And by doing that, we'll learn something about how you and I can find joy in giving to gospel-advancing causes. And I've introduced these reasons already, but they're partnership, profit, and pleasure. First, partnership. Paul rejoiced at receiving the gift because it was a clear display of the partnership which the Philippians had with Paul in the gospel. In verse 14, Paul says, It was good of you to share with me in my trouble. The idea here is one that's been repeated throughout Paul's letter, and it's that the Philippians are partners with Paul in his ministry. They have a fellowship with Paul in his ministry and in his sufferings. And this partnership wasn't just expressed in the latest uh, gift. It was a partnership that dated back to shortly after the gospel had taken root in Philippi. Now, after Paul and Silas had uh, spent a short stint in prison in Philippi when the church was started there, they left for Thessalonica, which was just about 100 uh, miles away. And already then, Paul says, the Philippians sent help to support Paul in his ministry. So Paul, and Silas, Paul had barely left Philippi and already this fledgling congregation had come together and they decided we're going to support Paul in his work of seeing the gospel go out but their partnership didn't stop there in Acts 18 Paul had gone on to Corinth and Silas and, and Timothy arrived from Philippi and they bring yet another gift for Paul that enabled Paul to continue doing his ministry in Corinth without burdening uh, the Corinthians. No other church had come alongside Paul like the Philippians. They had uniquely and repeatedly stood with Paul, partnering with him, standing in the trenches to make sure the gospel could go forth. Now notice here uh, the mutuality that's in view. The Philippians were not missionaries in the sense that Paul was. Uh, The Philippians didn't uh, go out. They weren't sent And while they continued to minister in their community amidst very difficult uh, circumstances, yet the Philippians played a very real, a very meaningful role in seeing the worship of Jesus go out to new parts of the world. And that was a real encouragement to Paul because he could see that though they were separated by distance, yet they were united together in seeing the Great Commission go forward. And when we give... Uh, in support of our missionaries and church planners and other gospel-advancing work, this should be a source of great joy for us as well. Because our giving is a visible representation of the partnership that we have with men and women uh, who, as our representatives, are seeing the gospel go forward in other parts of the world. Parts of the world that you and I are likely not to travel to. So when we give... Our our giving is a manifestation of the connection and partnership that we have with those brothers and sisters in Christ already. Secondly, Paul finds joy in the profit of their gift. But it's not Paul who sees himself profiting finally, but the Philippians. And it's not a profitability in terms of dollars and cents, but in terms of a spiritual return on investment verse 17, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. By their gift, these believers who are saved uh, uh, by grace alone through faith alone, they were not earning their way into God's acceptance. Paul said in chapter 3 very clearly that our good works don't achieve our acceptance uh, before God. We want to rightly defend the gracious character of our salvation. And yet, Paul says, along with the rest of scripture, he, he, he makes clear that God does graciously reward the deeds of his people who, who, are, who he's chosen to freely save. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that your heavenly Father will reward those who give in secret to those who are in need. But even this reward is built upon a foundation of grace. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said that God freely provided both the financial means that we have to give and the final spiritual harvest that our giving produces. So the means and the end of our giving is supplied from God, and yet God is pleased to reward us for our faithfulness in giving. This is what Paul uh, says elsewhere. This is consistent, rather, with what Paul says here in our passage, because joy welled up within Paul. As he saw grace at work in the Philippians that uh, would result in their spiritual benefit, both now and on the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was filled with gladness at the prospect that these Philippians were making an investment that would accrue rich interest for them. I wonder... Uh, when the the time comes where we we say, okay, we ought to to give to the Lord as an act of worship in our services, is that how you think about giving in the Christian life? By faith, do you see the act of giving as an act of spiritual investment? One pastor I know described the church's giving as an investment in a spiritual mutual fund. When you and I give... We're not only partnering with other Christians to see the gospel advance, but we're also making a spiritual investment that will yield a generous return on investment. William Hendrickson, commentator, says that in this life, God will use our investment to produce joy in us and others, to strengthen our assurance, to tighten the bonds of Christian fellowship, to give us a clear conscience in the matter of our giving, And to give us a greater appreciation for God's work that's going on throughout the world. But even more, we might say, is the expectation that when we die and we stand before the Lord at the great judgment, we will receive a commendation according to our generosity. And so Paul rejoices in the expected benefit that will accrue to the Philippians on account of their gospel-driven generosity. If we adopt the apostles' outlook, we too can find joy in our giving, knowing, as the author of Hebrews says, that God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that we have shown for his name in serving the saints. Finally, pleasure is the third reason that the Philippians' gift is such a joyful thing. Their offering will not only be rewarded by God, but it is pleasing to God. Paul says in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul was pleased with their gift because God was. And Paul here switches out of the investment language in verse 17, and now he takes up language that has to do with sacrifice in the Old Testament. If you looked back in your Bibles, all the way back in Genesis 8, in the story of Noah, we see this language being used. Noah and his family, uh, you'll recall they were uh, uh, in the ark as the the rains came down and the earth was flooded, and they're finally delivered from the flood, and Noah uh, gets out of the ark. He places his feet on solid ground for the first time in a long time, and you can only imagine how good that would have felt. I mean, what would you have done if you had been stuck in an ark for that long with all those animals? All right, maybe take a walk, uh, uh, take a warm bath, right? Uh, find something to eat. But Noah builds an altar to the Lord on which he sacrificed some of the animals from the ark of the Lord. He burns these animals on the altar. And scripture says that the smell, the aroma of the roasting meat was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, it might be hard for us to understand what it means or what it looks like for God to take pleasure in something. When you and I are delighted in something, there's physical signs that come with that delight, right? We might rub our hands together. We might uh, lick our lips. We might smile. There might be any number of things that would show that we're, we're pleased, that we're delighted. But what does it look like for God, who is spirit, to be pleased well, We can only understand by way of analogy from Scripture, uh, but the analogy that Scripture gives is one that I think you and I can relate to. My uh, parents were visiting this past week uh, from Canada. Uh, it was the first time in three years, and, and to celebrate their visit, I purchased a nice beef brisket to put on my pellet smoker. So I used a nice combination blend of, of pellets. I, I put that meat on uh, in the wee hours of the morning, it was still cold and dark. It was on that, that smoker for uh, many hours and you could smell the pellets and you could smell the meat mixing together, the barks being formed, the fats rendering. And you know what? When I smelt that, what I do? I smiled. I took a breath in, <sighs> right? That smells good. Genuine pleasure. Well, in an analogous way, we're to understand that Noah's sacrifice, offered in faith and out of a love to God, was similarly pleasing to God. It was as as if God took a deep breath in, he's filled with delight, and he exhales with a smile. Now, as we read through our Bibles, we discover that there's been an end made to these types of sacrifices. And that's because Jesus, the Son of God, came for sinners. He offered up his life on the cross for sinners like you and me. And this, the Bible tells us, is the ultimate fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's ultimate in the sense that no other sacrifice was perfect and without a trace of sin like his was. And no other sacrifice could reconcile us to God but his. In this sense, it was the once for all sacrifice for sin that the book of hebrews speaks about and yet at the same time while we embrace that once for all sacrifice the new testament still speaks of sacrifices which we make to god not to secure our pardon but to give thanks for it the author of hebrews could still say through christ then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to god that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Offered in faith to God, our generosity toward those in need, both physical need but also spiritual need, is pleasing to the Lord. Friends, God is pleased by your faith-filled generosity. And seeing the gospel advanced and the Great Commission fulfilled, Just as we're told there's great joy in heaven when one sinner repents, so there's pleasure in God when you give generously to see the gospel go forward because you love Jesus. You love what Jesus has done for you. You want to see others caught up in this great love story of salvation as well. Every uh, Sunday or during the week, you have an opportunity to give. Uh, to your general fund. And if your general fund is like the general fund at our church, it, it's used to support the, your ministry here in Walkerton as a church, but also the ministry of our denomination. It supports church planning efforts in North America. It supports foreign missions around the world. What a great opportunity this is when you write your check or when you, when you put the, the, the cash in, in the box, not, to not just be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word. Because when we give our gifts to these causes, we're not just checking off another box on the list of of things we're supposed to do as Christians. It's an expression of our fellowship with other believers who are laboring in other places for the gospel. It's a, a spiritual investment in faith that God will redound to our credit. But most of all, when done as an act of faith in gratitude to God for the salvation that he has given us in Jesus, it pleases our Heavenly Father generous, faith-filled giving for the sake of the gospel is not some uh, interruption in our worship service. It's not something that we just are supposed to do, but it's an act of partnership, it's an investment, and it's a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. But understood this way, what can keep us from giving eagerly to to grow in this joy-producing act of, of gospel advancement? Well, it's as if Paul anticipates one of our potential concerns, because we might be sitting there and thinking, can I really be expected to give when I have an unconscionable amount of student debt, or when my mortgage is through the roof, or did you hear about inflation? All right, maybe I'll just give when things are a little bit more secure. I remember quite vividly sitting in church uh, one Sunday as a teenager. I had slid into the back row uh, with my friends in the high school auditorium where our church was meeting and the offering plate was being passed and, and, uh, and a kindly, well-intentioned Dutch lady who was sitting in front of us turns around and says, uh, you don't have to give now. You just, you just wait until you're older. Now, charitably, I think that she just saw, okay, we're a bunch of cash-strapped teenagers and she didn't want us to be, uh, feel a sense of obligation to give. And yet with this text in view, there's two problems with her counsel. First, it was short-sighted because uh, if, if we followed that counsel, it would deprive us of participating in this act of grace, which pleases God and will be rewarded by him. But second, it misses out on the promise of verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippians were not giving out of their immense wealth. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that they gave out of their extreme poverty. But they would not be losers for their generosity for the cause of the gospel, Paul says. Written from a prison cell, this is not a promise that every wish we have will be granted or that every hardship will be avoided. But it's the promise that in every circumstance, God will supply what we need to be satisfied in him and to live for him. As he says elsewhere, writing to the Philippians, God is able, to, or writing to the Corinthians rather, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's no miserly promise that God gives us here. God invites us to give generously, to give ambitiously, to give joyfully for the advance of the gospel, motivated by our gospel partnerships, motivated by our promised reward, and motivated by the pleasure of God. And as we do this, as believers who are in Jesus, he will move to meet our needs, our spiritual needs, but our physical needs as well, so that we have all that we need to glorify him. And he'll do this in a way that accords with his glorious riches. Think of it this way, God will not send us forth without supplying us what we need to obey him. A missionary in Turkey in the 19th century was asked one time how he could give so much despite having so little and still be able to give. And he answered, he said, I keep shoveling over to the Lord and he keeps shoveling back to me, but his shovel is bigger than mine. Well, we're invited to find joy in Jesus as we give give in faith to see his name and his works lifted up throughout the world And we can do so knowing that as we give, the Lord will generously and gloriously supply us with all that we need in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know sometimes it feels like joy is hard to come by, and yet here in your word, uh, there's a word for us that's perhaps not the one we'd expect. That Lord, as we give to see the gospel advanced, that can be a fuel for the Christian's joy because we recognize that we are joined with other believers around the world. And Lord, Lord, though we might stay close to home yet, we are not alone in seeing, uh, in desiring to see Jesus' name lifted up. We can find joy in knowing that as we give, Lord, you have promised to bless and to reward as we give in faith. And Lord, we can find great joy in knowing that as we give according to the means which you supply, we are doing so uh, underneath your pleasure, as recipients of your smile, and this all because of grace. Lord, we thank you that you have promised as well to provide for us all that we need, and we, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to be faithful to that promise as we know you will be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.